Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Now here's the host of the show, a man who reinvented himself after being told he was old news, and that was 30 years ago. It's TV's Tim Stack. Yay! Yay! The crowd loves me. Welcome to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack, my 100th show. No, I'm sorry. It's my 19th show. I was so close. Uh, anyway, thank you for being here. I'm going to tell uh, quickly tell that Parker Lewis story because what it did was it got me to sort of reinvent myself, which I share with uh, my guest today, which we'll get to in a second, who, who we'll get to in a second. But uh, what happened was I, I was in the early 90s and I'm doing the show Parker Lewis Can't Lose, which enabled me and the family to move to Santa Barbara. Because I said to my lovely wife, Jano, who also works with my guest, um, I said, it's never going to be this easy and this lucrative at the same time. So if we're going to go, let's go now. And then once we're there, we'll figure it out. So I'm on Parker Lewis Can't Lose. Great job. Great show. Still a wonderful show. And, and I'm in contact with some of those kids. And um, then the show ends. But then my friend, also a Santa Barbarian, Barry Finero, who was from the Groundlings and big success in Golden Girls and has been on this show, called me and he said, hey, Tim, we got a pilot at uh, NBC and uh, we want you in it to play. And, and he tells me it plays the idiot cop. I'm like, great, in. Don't even have to read it because Barry's so funny and I can play idiot, fill in the blank, anything. <laughs> so then he literally calls me back. 10 minutes later. And he said, you're not going to believe this. Uh, NBC is not interested in you. And the quote was your old news. And I was just like, what? And he said, I don't know what to say. We worked them. And that's the final answer. And I, at this point, I know that old news is not a good term in Hollywood. That's not, a, <laughs> that's not a good thing to be, you know, coined. So um, I quickly wrote a spec Seinfeld and I got it to a guy who I'd worked for, Dave Duclon, and he was doing a new show and he read it and he really loved it enough to say, why don't you come right on this show, this new show? So that's what got me into writing uh, on a more full-time basis. And that's what got me to meet Greg Garcia, who I've worked for for the last 20 years. And uh, so so the reinventing myself uh, turned out to be a good thing. And it's all because some executive uh, said that I was old news. But here I am now. Wow. 30 that's some. inspiring. Oh, thank you. And that voice you heard is my next guest. Let me introduce you. This is the intro is really long. Okay, here we go. There's the drum roll. My guest this week has also reinvented herself. She's a graduate of Santa Barbara High School. Nobody does that. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but she did graduate uh, from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, and literally not a lot of people do that. She then went to New York. She was on stage with Rex Harrison and Claudette Colbert. I want to talk about that in a play called Aren't We All? She also did a play with Tony Randall that toured the country. Then she goes to Los Angeles, and she's on TV shows Seinfeld. We can compare notes there. The Nanny. I want to talk a little bit about Fran Drescher, because uh, I have an observation. Uh, and then she also moved her family to Santa Barbara and reinvents herself and has developed this really great career in voiceover and especially audio book reading. And she was just nominated. She went to New York for the Audio Book Awards and was nominated for a Best Reader. She can explain that, what that is. Um, and we'll talk about who she lost to, because I have a conspiracy theory about that. Anyway, uh, please welcome. She's all, oh, I got to get this in. She's also the daughter of a famous actor and stepdaughter, some of whom call, people call her, the stepmom, the first supermodel. So we're going to talk about that. Anyway, please welcome my friend, my wife's partner, Pamela Dillman. Yay! Thank you. I'm delighted to be talking to you, Tim. Okay, we're out of time after that intro. <laughs> the show is over. Thank you. Uh, Pamela, thanks so much for doing this. It's uh, I see you all the time, but it's uh, it's fun to do this and, and to talk about you and your career. Um, so what just happened in New York? You went to New York. You were nominated for an award. Can you explain that? 
Yes, indeed. So it's called an Audi, uh, short for Audible. Right. Um, and uh, so it it was a big gala um, where in every category in the audiobook world, everything from nonfiction to to self-help to humor to fiction, you there were five nominees worldwide. And you, you were uh, one of five. I was one of five. That's crazy. That's so great. It is because honestly, everybody says, you know, it's an honor just to be nominated. But but honestly, that's the truth, because the book that I was nominated for a wonderful, funny, funny book called The Wilder Widows by Catherine Hastings was an independent publication. It wasn't published by a major publishing house. And I produced, directed, mastered it, engineered it when she came to me for for the job so it wasn't it it was both not a um a publishing house behind it and not a major publishing house behind the audio version so the fact that it even came to the attention of the audio publishers association is a very big deal well that's and, really yeah. kudos to you Great it is it work. is i'm really it was it, it was mind blowing that that uh, 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 I think it's a very funny book. We were also the only book that was not a sort of personal memoir. I mean, the David Sedaris one, right? One of the funny guys. He's fantastic, know. and his books are fantastic. Oh yeah, he's also so, a celebrity. He's also like huge in that world. So who are they going to yes. give the? That's my conspiracy yes. theory. Who yes. are they going to give well, the award to? Are they going to give it to David Sedaris? Well, you know, it makes sense. I mean, honestly, we could talk about this kind of thing for hours. But in every category, the the audiobooks that won were promoted by the biggest, yeah. you know, publishers and featured the biggest celebrity narrators. And that's OK, because they're the ones that make the industry money. 100%. So, they drive so, the business. So there you go. So it really was an honor to be nominated. Oh my God, it's huge! And I didn't realize you had done the producing of it. And uh, yep, wow, that's great. I do want to get back to the actual process, but let's just go back to the beginning and let people get to know you a little bit. So you grew up in Santa Barbara, and you grew up in kind of the seventies, right? In Santa Barbara. Pretty much. I was actually born in Los Angeles, went to grammar school in L.A., uh, um, and then my family bought their Santa Barbara home here in Montecito in 1968. Wow. Although my dad had been growing up in Santa Barbara when in his teen years. He was born in San Francisco, but his mom bought a house in Santa Barbara in the 30s. Wow. So we go way back in Santa Barbara. And um, so, yeah, the, he and, and my stepmother, Susie Parker, bought their house in Montecito in 1968. So that's when I started coming up summers. And then eventually I moved here full time by the time I was in junior high. And you that's went to I school went to here. Barbara, junior high and high school. And, and we haven't said it wasn't a big secret, but your dad was Bradford Dillman, who had yeah. a really just an incredible career as an actor that that lasted decades i mean and very few people do that you know you yeah. remember an actor is like oh yeah they were in the 50s that guy was in the 50s 60s 70s and 80s i mean that's really was a great a legitimately great career um you know and but but the thing is you did get to see santa barbara like i feel like we moved in 91 and we sort of caught the tail end of what now is referred to as like we caught the last year of old Santa Barbara. And I just think what a wonderful place to have grown up and with the ocean and the beach. And then, you know, it was a small town. Absolutely. Everybody says who grows up in Santa Barbara that we take it for granted when we're here, but we really kind of do. It is an unbelievable privileged place to have grown up. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Both my kids are like, how can I we move there now? We'd like to come back there now. Um, and and correct me if I'm wrong. Did you have a bunch of people in your class or around your class who were successful in show business? Like, was Anthony Edwards in your class or Eric Stoltz? They were not in my class. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm getting over a cold. Um, they were not in my class. They were two years younger. Wow, you just aged 80 years in that voice. I know. <laughs> <Excuse> <laughs> Let me clear my throat here. No worries. 
maybe even three. <laughs> and they did not go to Santa Barbara High. I think, oh. I think I could be wrong on that. Maybe Tony Edwards did. Tony Edwards went to Santa Barbara Junior High, so he probably did go to Santa Barbara High. Right. Eric Stoltz, I think, was at San Marcos. And and Brad Hall, was he around? Was he in your class? Brad Hall went to Santa Barbara High before he transferred to private college in Chicago. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. then... You guys said, but then how did you end up at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London? That had to be, I mean, maybe your dad was influencing you. That had to be a big move. My dad did not want me to become an actor. Oh. I, I, um, yeah, he was pretty set on the fact that the industry is not good for women. He was not wrong. And uh, yeah, it's true. Oh my! And um, particularly, it's, it's better, you know, but horrible back then. It was horrible, and um, particularly if you were going to be in a leading lady category as opposed to a character category. A thousand percent. Yeah. On that. So one. he did not want me to go into the industry, but I was set on it. Excuse me. So I, um, I told him I wanted to audition for drama schools. I also applied for the regular colleges. Uh-huh. And, um, North, I got into Northwestern, which, which Brad Hall went to. Right. And Julia Louis dreyfus <laughs> So <laughs> that was a good move. Um, but I, um, I thought I wanted the the drama school experience. So I auditioned for the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and Juilliard did not get accepted into Juilliard. But um, uh, and interestingly, they told me that they liked my audition at Juilliard. But the reason that they were not going to accept me was that my voice had a slight sibilance to the S and that. Yes. So th- that was really that was really an interesting thing. I worked on that sibilance for years I, after that. First of all, if I had been given that note, I'd have to go get a dictionary to look up the word. <laughs> what does that mean? It meant it meant that I was not placing my tongue properly in my mouth to to not produce a slight on the S. Can't you be taught that? Isn't well, that, this was my point. Isn't that, 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 school? that I needed to obviously learn that. But 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 I'm sure there were other reasons. However, the 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 director at RADA saw something in me, despite the fact that my audition was my dad actually helped me on my audition. Uh-huh. Uh, we had to do two pieces, a classic and a contemporary. And I chose Juliet Scallop a Pace Speech and then something from a play called And Miss Reardon Drinks a Little, which was a real character stretch. And my dad, who came from an actor studio background, he literally trained with Lee Strasberg and um, oh my God. he, he, he coached me on this audition, which was terrifying, by the way, I'm just digressing all over the place. That's all right. But if I can uh, uh, say that to work with my dad in an audition for the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art was the most terrifying experience of my life, not the audition, but being coached by my dad. It's that so was funny. I, I mentioned Greg Garcia earlier and he's got a son who's an actor and, and you can just see when the son is laying down an audition, and now in this world of self-taping, he sends Greg the audition before he hands it in, and then he gets notes back. And I know that Camden, who's a great actor, he's really a really good actor, but you just know he's sweating out, like, what's he going to say? Oh, my God, my dad's got notes. So It's so true. Yeah. I have never been more nervous in my life for anything than working with my dad on that audition. So uh, by the time I got into the actual audition, I was not nearly as nervous. Um, it still is remarkable to me, remarkable to me looking back that I got in because I was the only American accepted that year. And um Hugh Crotwell, the then principal of RADA, saw something in me, despite my ridiculous audition, where I literally like put on a wig. I did this thing where first I did the Juliet and then I turned around and I put on a wig and I turned back around and did this really <laughs> over the top, I think. And Miss Reardon drinks a little monologue, but he saw something in me and it changed the course of my life, That's of great. course. That's really, so, really good. 
I, yeah. I, I have to, and then we're going to get to all the voice work, but I, I do love your voice. I just, part of it is I watch, as does my wife, we watch so many movies on Turner Classic Movies, and then you take your voice, and the, we'll talk about this on the other side, uh, the fact that you got to work with Rex Harrison oh and Claudette gosh. Colbert, talk about two of the most famous voices that ever yeah. came through Hollywood. Um Anyway, we'll talk about that. We're going to our first commercial. We're going to take a break. I'm talking to okay. Pamela Dillman, voice actress, audio book reader, just an award winner or just nominated <laughs> for an Audi. It's really um, just exciting. I didn't know you had produced it yourself. Um, uh, anyway, you can find her at PamelaDillman.com. And I'll uh, plug uh, Sprung, as you know, I've talked about many times, is running on Amazon Freebie, another Greg Garcia creation that's really worth seeing um and we'll talk to pamela more on the other side of this commercial you're listening to it's radio with tv's tim stack be right back Hey, everybody, it's Tim Stack from It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack asking you to watch the show Sprung on Freevee, Amazon's new free channel. I promise you it's funny, it's got heart, and my shoulder appears in episode three. He extended a single finger and touched her under the chin as he said it. Martre de Florian, it's the perfect name for you. She curled her lips and smiled. The café was sumptuous and elegant. It delighted her that Charles thought its name also suited her. Do you like it? he asked. Who knew it would be so easy to lose my name and start again with a new one? He leaned back into the deep blush of the banquette and took out his pipe. She watched as he placed the mouthpiece between his lips and deftly lit the chamber. His movements were elegant and self-assured. She observed him a student receiving a silent education. He closed his eyes briefly, and a plume of blue smoke wafted into the air. She could see how her new name combined with the tobacco filled him with a sense of satisfaction. And from the moment she shedded her real name, a wonderful sense of weightlessness washed over her. That was my guest, Pamela Dillman, reading from a book called The Velvet Hours. It's just, uh, your voice is just great. It's just, it... It harkens back to a different time, but it, the pronunciation, it's just wonderful. And I can see why you're working like crazy uh, reading these audio books and doing other voice work. It's just, here's the other thing. You know, your dad talking about not wanting you to go in, you know, the leading lady thing. It's not a good thing. Yet your voice is timeless. Mm. Oh, is. thank you. I, I attribute some of that to my mother who was, who was, English by, by birth, uh -huh. Canadian in her upbringing. She speaks with a very mid-Atlantic accent. Um, mid-Atlantic being a reference to something that hardly exists in the real world, but was a really a Hollywood creation in the early days of the talking pictures. Right. For, for, for actors and actresses who grew up in the sort of contract era of Hollywood, it was a very real way that they were coached to speak. And my mother just naturally adopted that. And That's she funny. taught, she was very, very particular about the way we spoke when we were growing up. Right. And that, so that's honestly. There was no lazy, there was no lazy slurring or any, you know. Oh, she can't bear it. Yeah. yeah. That's really <laughs> funny. I think my parents were okay on that. They didn't like it, you know, and then. Uh, they were more concerned about curse words. That's where they were. Um, so let's, while we, we just heard your voice, and then I'll go back to the career again, but let's talk about the process of recording an audio book, because I, I'm just curious, you have a booth, you work at home now, right? You have a, you've built a little mini studio in your house. Is that right? 
Yes, that's right. Well, I do still go into studios additionally, but I can do record a lot of jobs from home. And yeah. when you record, is there somebody else? Is there like a Dr. D in the room, the engineer, or is the writer in the room or a producer? Who, who else is listening in on this? It depends upon the job. It depends upon the production company that's behind it. A lot of times you do Zoom in um, or FaceTime in with a director, um, and then you'll send the finished raw files to a um, an editor and a, and a production finisher. But sometimes if there is not a budget for that, it's all you. And that was the case in the book that I was nominated for. So... They just let you do it. What if they have notes or changes? They'll just give you, you notes and you re-record those parts? Exactly. And that happens. I mean, no matter how much you go over it, you will. there will always be pickups. Um, and so that's just a given. You'll, um, but if there are actual notes about character voices that they might disagree with, you try to do those up front. You try to send them like the first 15 minutes and say... Is this, you know, if you think there's going to be a problem with this, let me know. Right. But, um, and but do, no, it's pretty much. And, and do you, that's what, that was one of my questions is if there's a character in the, in the book, then you have a voice for that character and there's another character that may have a different voice other than the narrator. You run those by the, uh, the people in charge before you record them. It varies. It, it's some, I'm working on a murder mystery series right now and a production company um, uh, works with the author. The author chose me from a da database that the production company presented to them. And then I emailed the author to talk a bit about my ideas for the voices. And I never did after that run it by them. So I hope the author is going to be pleased with what I did because now I'm for, I'm on the fourth book. So <laughs> it's, it's a commitment. Too late now. Right. Uh, no, I wondered about that because I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks and like I'm a big fan of the uh, mystery guy, writer James Elroy. And he oh, yeah. always has this actor, Craig Wasson, read his books. And some of the characters are, I feel like, some of them are really, really good. And other ones, I think, like, well, that's not good. That's, like, crazy, like, for this guy. And it almost felt like Craig Wasson was sort of doing his own one-man show. It's a fine line between, uh, you know, taking a character and making it too big and because you still want the tension and the drama of the book you're reading. Absolutely. It's the most difficult thing about being an audiobook narrator is that is that balance, because you have to portray every character and be very distinct about that. But you also don't want to get in the way of the listener and be so performative that the listener is more aware of you as the narrator than the story. Right. So I could tell you who my favorite narrators are who seem to do that effortlessly. Who but, are they? Uh, well, um, there's a Scott Brick. If you Google audiobooks, Scott Brick's name is going to come up. He's he is like the guy in the industry. He's he's and um, and he sort of works every day. There's always something for him to record. He works every day. Wow. My m one of my That's other great. favorite audiobook narrators of all time is Frank Muller, who's no longer alive. God bless him. I feel I just, like I've listened to a book. Oh, my gosh. By him. Just the best of the best. Um so how about, how about men versus women in your world? Is there a ratio? Yeah, that's a good question, too. In the beginning days of the audiobook industry, there were more men because in the early days, the industry was um, building a Library of Congress sort of database, and it was mostly classics and top bestsellers only that were being narrated. Right. And there were a handful of people who were doing it. And a lot of the classics were written by men. So a lot of them were cast for men narrators because you tend to be cast according to the gender of the author. Although not always, if the, if the author has written a book from, from an opposite gender's point of view, then that will be how it might, it will probably be cast. But most of the classics were written by men. Therefore, most of the classics were narrated by men. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. It's it's yeah. it's a whole world and it's a world that's not going away. Like 
I look it's at my well, world now of streaming television and Hollywood is in such disarray and it's just crazy. But the audiobook world that bleeds right in with podcasts and, and radio shows, it does it seems to be growing to me. It is. It's growing. I just got back from New York, which is where I got this cold, I'm sure, um, where the biggest audiobook convention happens every year. And it was so packed with new narrators and new producers and new publishers that you couldn't even turn around in those big rooms at the Marriott Marquis. Did everybody at the convention have a voice like you? I'm just figuring everybody, everybody has a perfect voice. Everybody. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's funny. I remember uh, <laughs> and days when I would back in the day, there was a short time where I thought I could book commercials and I never I booked one. And but I used to go around, and sometimes you'd go into places where they uh, they were also auditioning uh, voiceover people. And back in those days, all the voiceover guys would be out front smoking cigarettes. Ernie Anderson and these guys who just made livings like doing that voice, and they all smoked on purpose to keep to keep, like Suzanne Plachette. You know? Yep, she'll sound like Suzanne Plachette. Yeah, you well, gotta keep a pack of parliaments by your bed because you want to keep that voice going. For real. Well, actually, though, I have to say, in the audiobook world, people who have golden voices are not necessarily the ones who are going to work because the audiobook world is is has more to do with acting than it does with golden voicing. So so I just I just say that to all of those people who might be listening who have truly golden voices who could be doing wonderful voiceover work in general but audiobooks do have more to do with with acting yeah, yeah i think you're you know and it's something we don't as a listener we don't even think about but i can see your analysis being dead on because it's you know you're bringing you're bringing a book to life uh which is another form of acting it is for sure and it's also being truthful if you if you're in your head and listening to how great your voice sounds and you're not in the in the text in the intention of what the author is trying to portray it will it, it the the listener will know every bit as much as a film actor who's not being real the audience knows right um okay so let's go back to the career i i, I gotta talk about that you were on stage with rex harrison and claudette colbert were they yeah. nice people it was such a fabulous experience. So, yes, they were wonderful to us. I was I was 25, they were 85. It 185. was an extraordinary life experience. Did they remember people. their lines? Yes, indeed. Wow. They've been doing that particular play. It started in London. So they'd already been doing it for a year by the time it came to the states. Yeah. So it was not a problem for them. They had completely different ways of working. Interestingly, Rex Harrison, even though he would never have called himself a method actor, but he produced a performance every day that was determined by his mood that day. So if he was not sort of feeling in a great mood, his performance would reflect a certain kind of sourness and moodiness that it hadn't perhaps the day before His that doesn't, lines that doesn't sound like fun no, the, the the audiences didn't always get the best of rex uh, yeah. they got an absolutely perfect interpretation of what claudette colbert wanted to give every single time it was exactly the same rex which was great that was yeah. they, they got what they came for and the audience got it but rex would give what he felt like giving on wow. that day he sounds a little bit of a diva um <laughs> but i'm always curious when it when i you know i'm i love old movies i love old movie stars we're going to talk about your dad on the other side of this um but i i'm just so entranced with that and the few times i've ever gotten to work like i got to work with robert mitchum and i got to work with blake edwards i i always end up talking to them because i i know something about them and i'm Anyway, it strikes up a conversation and they somehow start talking to me, which is a wonderful thing. Did, <laughs> did you converse with them a lot? I mean, they're just 
two screen legends. I was just wondering, uh, like, I, 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 yes, and so it's yes and no. They definitely had they they stayed in different hotels while we were on tour. You know, they had their own social lives than from us younger cast members, but we did do things together. And um, Claudette, I would say, was more purposeful in the way that she would include the rest of the cast than Rex. He was he 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 was a, a little curmudgeonly in those years. And his his last wife um, was very protective of him. So one of the things people always want to ask is that he was a notorious ladies man. Is that true? Yes, yes, yes. Edward, that is absolutely true. But by the time I worked with him, it was policed by his life. Oh, his okay. That's life. funny. That's <laughs> funny. Uh, wow, Rex Harrison. I, one of my favorite, nobody ever talks about this film, but Unfaithfully Yours is one of the great performances. And, I, and he's a diva in that, yeah. in that movie. So uh, I okay. love him. Love him. So uh, we're going to take another break. Uh, we're talking with Pamela Dillman, a voice actress and audiobook reader. You can find her work or her credits, certainly, at PamelaDillman.com. And uh, she's got this series out now called, what is it again? The Wild, the Wilder, the Wilder Widows. Widows. The author is currently writing the third in the series. That's great. Yeah. And that's, the, again, just to make sure, that's the first book that you produced as well as read. Yes, that's and, correct. And here's a question just before the break. Like, what sells more, audio books or regular books? Well, that depends upon the marketing. Um, but there is certainly a growing demand for the yeah. audio version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I figured that. Yeah. So anyway, you're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack, and we'll be right back. Dillman, audiobook narrator and voice actor, and you're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Hello again. Our guest today is an actor whose big breakthrough came on Broadway in a long day's journey into night. Soon thereafter, he was captivating audiences with his fine portrayals in films and on television, including his mesmerizing performance as an immoral killer in Compulsion. Please join us in welcoming Bradford Dill Bradford Dillman, uh, who I got the pleasure of meeting through her daughter, Pamela, who is daughter, Pamela, who's my guest here today. Um, that intro was from the Skippy Low Show, which was a favorite of mine in Los Angeles. It was a public. Do you know about the Skippy Low Show, Pamela? No. Nope. Skippy Low. You can find these things on YouTube. Skippy Low had a. He was a very effete guy, very tiny. He had great hair, and he he uh, had actors who were in their later years in life. So they were pe a lot of people who had fantastic careers their whole lives in Hollywood. And then, you know, why your father didn't want you to go into acting, it dries up. It goes away. People are, you're become old news, like I had become old news. <laughs> and Skippy Lowe had no problem booking. And, and so I, watch, I still watch that show. I'll go on Skippy Lowe binges on YouTube. And your dad was on the show. So um, anyway, I took that clip to introduce him. But uh, I just want to talk about your dad for a second. Yes. Most people equate him. I would say, tell me if I'm wrong, they go to The Way We Were, the movie The Way We Were. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I would say so. And then you get, if you're really a fan, you start looking at uh, Compulsion, where he played one of the two guys in the Leopold and Loeb case. And I didn't realize he had won the Cannes Acting Award for that movie. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, Khan Film. Uh, he has a he has a Golden Globe for that one as well. I I I now have it. I have it on my mantle. Very good. <laughs> People just assume it's yours when you're on exactly. Zoom. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's my Golden Globe. Um, <laughs> which you wouldn't be lying. Um, right. And he, I remember, I remember him well from a Clint Eastwood movie, uh, The Enforcer, in the seventies. And he had this crazy—I mean, so much television work. I mean, just so much work over decades. Yeah. Um, I, you and I have talked about it. One of my favorite episodes of the Mary Tyler Moore Show, and also he did comedy. You know, it wasn't just like you know, Murder She Wrote. He did comedy. Um, it's one of my favorite episodes where he just listens. He will only listen to Broadway songs because he doesn't want to talk to Mary and Mary's <laughs> feelings are hurt. It's a great episode. Um, but he was handsome, but still funny, which wasn't the easiest thing to find back. Uh, well, it's still not. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but the big break comes, he's, I guess, out of Yale drama and he gets cast in the original Broadway production of A Long Day's Journey into Night with Frederick March. Is that right? That's correct. He was handpicked by Carlotta O'Neill. Wow. He, um, so so O'Neill himself had passed away, and she um, was very particular about who should be cast in, in that production. And Dad um, auditioned and made you know, the the final rounds of it and had to audition personally for Carlotta O'Neill. And um, he went to her apartment um, for the final round. And he was so nervous that he got a little bit snarkered before he went into the audition. Well, it's sort of that could also be in character for Eugene O'Neill. Exactly. He did not intend for it to be so, but he does feel that that is in the end what got him the role because Carlotta O'Neill told the director, Jose Quintero, that that dad reminded her so much of her gene. (laughs) So maybe that that one drink too many might have clinched it. Wow. That's Not a, that I'm endorsing having one drink too many. <laughs> That's a great story. Uh, <laughs> what a different time. Um, yeah. So, but what, a lot of the things I loved about your dad was he was an actor, but he was a gentleman in a not-so-gentlemanly business of Hollywood. I'm sure he hated all the Hollywood BS stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, it's why why he and Susie bought the house in Santa Barbara originally. He did, he he never participated in the real Hollywood BS, as you say. He 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 really was not a very social guy, and he, he was couldn't. really enjoyable to talk to. The times I talked to him, also he had a great sense of humor. I mean, he was really Absolutely. funny and loved to laugh. Yep, yep, that is very true. But he never liked anything about the Hollywood schmoozing or the Hollywood scene. So, yeah, he um, he was one of the first actors of that generation to be commuting from Santa Barbara to L.A. for work. Right. Um, he used to he he used to make a joke about the fact that within a decade after they bought their house that going to the Montecito Village Grocery was like going to, you know, a Screen Actors Guild meeting after about a decade. I think, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad your dad's not here now for Montecito because <laughs> it's insane there. What's going on? It just yeah. I, I'm just waiting for the cameras and the Kardashians to show up. Oh, no. no, it's just a matter of time. It's just it's it's just it's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, talking about your dad, the, the, another thing I loved about him was. He he came from like most actors. Like he told me, he had gone to boarding school, yep. and at a time when he, when he went home at Christmas, and he living in San Francisco, and the boarding schools in the East Coast, he took the train home at Christmas. Yeah. So it was yeah. three days on a tra- like a fifteen year old kid on a train, and he said. I remember him saying, telling me, he said, you've never seen anything like a train at Christmas time when, you know, in the middle of Kansas, because it's nothing but like sailors on leave and prostitutes <laughs> and 15 year old Bradford Dillman, just like looking at this world 
Uh, but then he went on to, he went to Yale, right? As an undergrad? He went to Yale. The boarding school was Hotchkiss. And then he went to Yale undergrad, not Yale drama. Because after Yale, he then went into the Marine Corps, um, which his father was very proud of him for. And whenever he would introduce my dad in the early days of his career, when they were too, his parents were too embarrassed to admit that he was an, an actor. actor. He would say, but he's a Marine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but he's also a Marine. Oh, right. So it was after the Marine Corps that he went to New York and did a lot of live TV before he got the audition for Long Day's Journey. And uh, I have a, f- a very good friend, Rebecca Asher, whose mom, I mean, her grandfather was the actor Robert Montgomery. His mo- Her mom was the actress Elizabeth Montgomery, and her dad yes. was a big director. But I'm wondering, like, I've asked her about this, like, going to the store with your dad, like, you're a little kid, but he's a star. Was that a weird experience? I, 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 yes and no, because I had gone to an elementary school with a lot of actors who, uh, kids. This is down in L.A. Down in LA at the John Thomas Dye School, oh, okay, so sure. we, were, we were the we were the 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 poor man's celebrity family that where because it was literally I went to school with Jamie Lee Curtis and and all the Douglas boys, right? And, you know, so so we were the least celebrities, but yeah, when we were you know once we moved up to Santa Barbara and we'd be walking down the street and people would stop and yeah. want his autograph. Those were the days where people wanted autographs instead of selfies, right? right. Um, it was it was it was it was cool it was cool the 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 biggest the biggest deal for me which was good and bad was that my dad started teaching an acting class here in santa barbara by the time i was in junior high and high school because he saw a lot of talent we talked earlier about um tony edwards and eric stoltz but ahead of them there were other actors tim bottoms all the bottoms boys Uh and saw a lot of talent in Santa Barbara and he not for profit there no no fee involved he would tap some of these actors who were doing local productions and say hey would you want to be in my acting class so it became a very big deal to be asked to be in Brad Dillman's acting class wow i can and, imagine and I that, that for a kid yeah, a lot of a lot of people wanted to be my friend just because they were hoping oh, that they could so now you're time. back in hollywood again your dad, <laughs> what can your dad do to help me um yeah. so uh so but and you mentioned him going to la a lot he must have been on location a lot yeah but then in 1960 he goes to italy to make a film called circle of deception mm-hmm. which i have to say i don't think i've ever seen uh, i'll have to look for it but he eventually it's that's where he meets and eventually marries your stepmom Susie parker is that right yeah. That is correct. Yeah, they were the story they both told was that that film was a punishment from Fox for both of them. They were both under contract to 20th Century Fox at the tail end of the contract days. And um, they had both refused other projects that had been given them. And that's what would happen in those days. You would you could only refuse up to three and then you would just you would have to do whatever they cast you in and you would have no say in the matter. So wow. this was their punishment casting was that movie. And she didn't want to do it because she'd never heard of Bradford Dillman. And he didn't want to do it because Susie Parker was just a model, not an actress. Right. What the heck was this all about? And um, the rest is history. However, they fell in love. They fell in love. <laughs> and was it were your dad was married at the time was was Susie? Susie was not. Um, she had been married right. to um to a Frenchman and um, had a child with uh-huh. with Pichu de la Salle, um, but they were no longer married. And was yeah. that at the time a scandal? Was that uh, it, just... it, her marriage to Pichu was what was more the sort of scandal because she was she was one of she probably was the first international model to have been known by name, which is why she arguably deserves the title of the first world's first supermodel. Right. So the people pro, behind her, you know, the Ford agency 
um, did not want her to be um, a married woman. So they kept her marriage to Petula de la Salle under wraps for some reason, and therefore the divorce. So it wasn't so much that it was a scandal that... that um, uh, took over the tabloids. Married. It was that she had been married. Now, wow. my dad was still married to my mom when they met um and so the the studio did keep that particular thing under wraps as long as they could it's so funny the way the studios would control yeah. everything yeah. and get involved yeah. and oh yeah. my god what a i, I guess <laughs> it's the same now i don't know it just you, you don't hear of that now anymore and of course now the bigger the scandal you're in the better it is oh, for absolutely. your career it's just the yeah. opposite uh we're going to come up on our final break i'm talking to pamela dillman you can find her at pamladillman.com she's an audi nominee for her work as an audiobook reader and a voice actress and uh you can always watch sprung on amazon freebie i always tell people that um and we'll be right back with Pamela. And you're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Tim Stack, and having been in show business for so long, I have a lot of really funny friends, and you can hear them all on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. That's part of the Jeremiah Show. So listen. Most people really don't understand hospice care until we receive it. I didn't, not until my stepmother was on hospice with VNA Health. Patients and families need to know that you don't have to walk the end of life path alone. VNA Health can be there with you, surrounding you with compassion and dignity and peace. VNA Health is here to help when you need it most. That was my guest, Pamela Dillman, an on-camera commercial for, uh, um, it, it's Visiting Nurses, right? Isn't that the group? It's Visiting Nurse Association. We are branded as VNA Health here in Santa Barbara. Yes, but Visiting Nurse Association is a nationwide organization. Right. And Pamela just doesn't do uh, on-camera commercials and voiceover for them. You actually do a lot of work, and it's such a great organization. I wanted to take a little bit of time uh, and just explain that organization for people, for you to great. explain. Awesome. Well, I've been on their board for a decade and I truly did get involved because of the end of life care that they gave first to my stepmother and then years later to, to my dad. And um, it's a home health organization as well as hospice. And we also have the loan closet here in town, which a lot of people utilize without even knowing that it is part of VNA Health and Serenity House, which is the, the hospice home up on the Mesa. Um, that's so great. And is there a website for them? Is it, is it visiting nurses.com? It, it would be VNA health. Dot, I, I could look it up for you, but yes. <laughs> VNA, VNA health. Dot, VNA health dot something. Yeah. Yeah. We'll yeah. Dot, it could be VNA health SB dot. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. And then are you also involved in, uh, with a uh, center theater group here in town? I have performed a lot at the center stage. I'm not on their board. I have been on, on the board of other arts organizations. I'm still currently on the board of Creative Network, which is a national um, organization that helps um, uh, kids from underprivileged communities by um, teaching them dance, mainly hip hop. Uh -huh. It's an after school program that keeps them you know, making making good choices and artistic ones. Oh, that's so that's so great. So um, let's go back. We missed some of this. Uh, we're going to go back and find some other things to talk about, which is I, I you you left New York and you moved to Los Angeles. And I mm -hmm. noticed uh, like you studied with Jeff Goldblum in mm -hmm. some sort of why did you go to studying 
after you had been to the Royal Academy and been on Broadway and been on a national tour? What prompted I'm that move? So, I'm, I'm so glad to talk about that because I, I just believe that we should never feel like we know it all. And, you know, I was uh-huh. working, but I, wouldn't, I wasn't getting the, jo- the jobs that I sometimes felt that I should have gotten. Right. And so I obviously needed to learn a thing or two about how to audition again. And so I happened upon Playhouse West in Los Angeles, which is the L.A. version of, of Neighborhood Playhouse in New York. Uh-huh. It was run at that time by Jeff Goldblum and Robert Carnegie. Robert Carnegie still runs Playhouse West in Los Angeles. And so I started all over, trained with him, learned his Meisner method. And I became absolutely fascinated with that process and eventually started teaching there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did not know that. Uh, I find teaching, you know, I, I teach at uh, a writing class right now. I go in and out, you know, it's not a full-time job. Um, I find teaching writing has made me a better writer. I don't know if I am or not, but it makes me <laughs> feel that way. Did you find that as it. an acting teacher? I absolutely. Yeah. It just, I, I absolutely learned something every day I was teaching to a student and I still I still coach for auditions and I sometimes teach a class at City College. Uh-huh. So I do find that very fulfilling. And in the voiceover world, I take master classes all the time. You 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 always have something to learn from somebody else. Right. Well, that's a great philosophy. I wish I could do that more <laughs> no it really is it's it's what we it's how we should live um so i want to quickly talk about because y- you knew brad hall from santa barbara and then you're cast in seinfeld with mm-hmm. his wife julia louis dreyfus i mm-hmm. wanted to hear your take on uh doing an episode of seinfeld was that a good experience oh it was fantastic i um uh, Brad pulled no strings for me in getting me that audition. Neither did Julia. It was it was just one of those things. Larry David ended up liking my audition, and um, and that's how it happened. And it was a great experience. One of the friendliest that's cast, what... the most relaxed, and just it was it was a truly fun experience. And you know, Tim, that that's not the case on every. No, that's why I wanted to bring it up because. Yeah. Uh... I also found them all to be the most professional show I'd ever worked on. You know, so many people just, you come to the table on Monday and all the regulars are talking about what they bought over the weekend, uh, you know, and it's a new BMW or something. And, and it just wasn't the, like they were there to work and they all rehearsed very hard. Jerry, I don't know if this was your experience. Didn't come down, you know, he would come down to rehearse and then he'd go back to the office to write. So he wasn't there that much. And Julia had just had a baby, so she was sort of in and out. But the rest of them, when they when they worked, they worked really hard. Like we're they worked really hard. Jerry wanted to run lines with me before the scene, which, you know, people might or might not know. That's actually kind of that really touched me that yes. he wanted to run the line yes. first. Yeah, it touched you that he wanted to align with you. And also, for me, it's just like he he's, and that speaks to how sad it is with actors. It's just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was so professional, he wanted to run lines. Right, exactly. You know, as opposed to getting on camera and going up on your line and knowing you were powerful enough, like it's not going to matter how many times yeah. you forget your line because you're going right. to get it eventually, but you're going to be there till four in the morning. Exactly, yeah. Um, so you did an episode of the nanny. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to hear your take on Fran Drescher. Nothing nasty. I just wanted to, if you have any impressions, because I have a, I have a distinct memory of Fran Drescher, but I want to hear yours first. Okay. Um, it was, it was, I would say n- not the same experience as Seinfeld in that the cast pretty much kept to themselves on uh-huh. um, on that show. And you really didn't see them until you showed up at the set. And there was not there. Yeah, there was no commingling. The my strongest memory of working on that show was that I'm not sure if it came from Fran Drescher or from one of the producers. But after I had been cast, 
there was some feedback that she and I looked too much alike and they needed to change my hair color. So right literally before the first day of taping, I the um, the hair people came to me and said, we're, go- we're going to give you a red wig because you look too much like Fran. <laughs> I, I can see that. I just, you know, I don't act very much anymore, but I, I just did a small bit in the old man and I normally wear glasses like I'm wearing right now. And they said, take them off because you look too much like John Lithgow and he's wearing glasses. It's like, oh, I get that. I get that. Um, no, my take on her was I did a pilot years ago um, with uh, Ben Savage was the star who went on to uh, Boy Meets Girl, Boy Meets World. And now now he's running for Congress. He's which is, running for Congress. Yes. Um, so I did this pilot and she played maybe his mom. No, I played the dad. Somebody else played the mom, got fired. And then Karen Valentine came in to replace her. I I knew the pilot, either the pilot was going to go without me because she came in and she was maybe 15 years older than me, uh, playing my wife, which was, they were just, they were just running the clock out on this pilot. But Fran Drescher was in it, I think as like the uh, single lady next door. But I never saw a person, I never saw a more confident person in my life, like in show business, like I never saw a more, like she walked into the audition room to test ahead of me and it just, a swagger that was just like, and it wasn't cockiness, it was just confidence, like I got this, you don't have to worry, I'm all over it, I got the part, but let's have some fun. Wow, yeah. that's saying something. Because, because, because I think deep down, none of us are really. No, you're absolutely like, right. We're all actually really insecure. <laughs> She's probably more insecure to yes. be able to pull that off. Uh, so I just want to go back. We're we're, we're getting to the end. I want to go back and tell, uh, ask you this question, especially regarding your dad and the time you grew up. When you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, did that hit home for you? I'm assuming you saw the movie. I did. I did. I'm thinking of all the Westerns because your dad was in so many of those. For sure he was. Yeah, no, it did. It did actually strike me. I don't see um, currently a lot of a a lot of stuff since since movies have not been in theaters. Yeah, I'm not seeing a lot. So I did end up seeing but I did end up seeing that one on um, on a streaming service. And I would say it did hit home. It really it really brought home to me that that time and place that yeah because that he would have been in the thick of that and you right. could absolutely see him having a career where he was doing movies and then television comes in and and uh you know i just well, i, I really his, uh his, what i'm getting his, at more than go ahead sorry i cut you off his hairdresser was jay sebring so he we, that was actually like a personal thing really too. yeah yeah wow and he was yeah. Wasn't he one of the people murdered? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that was personal. Well, that's even more personal than I, yeah. than I thought. <laughs> uh, but the other thing uh, about your dad that I just love is that he was also a, this is so weird, but he was also a scout for the San Francisco 49ers. Indeed. Probably the thing he was most proud of in his whole life, other than being a Marine. Um, uh, and being a writer as well, is that he was an unofficial scout for the San Francisco 49ers. He was tapped by Eddie DeBartolo to to sit in on the draft because they he, they knew he was from San Francisco. They knew he had some knowledge and they thought it was kind of cute and funny. And then he came in and he actually had so much knowledge because he spent so much of his downtime between acting jobs studying. Yes collegiate football that they would they ended up giving him year after year after year they'd give him a pick and at first it was kind of a joke but then they actually began to so funny yeah Yeah. i just remember hearing that from him i I was just like blown away by that uh we have used up our time we're all done here i've been talking to pamela dillman you can find her at uh, pameladillman.com uh has a bunch of audio books out there and now has awards for doing them. Uh, we was particularly want to plug the Wilder Widows, uh, a whole series out there that um, you can hear voice and enjoy some good literature. Uh, Pamela, thank you so much for doing this. 
Thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Okay, I'll see you this afternoon. I think you're coming to us. And uh, this is it, another edition of It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. We'll see you next time. Thank you. As always, a big thanks to our station manager, Les Carroll, for letting us on the air at all. Listeners, we appreciate you and want to hear from you. Please send us your ideas at jeremiah at thejeremiahshow.com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The show is produced by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins and me, your announcer, Tony Kelly. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.